I invite you to open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I would also like to say Happy Mother's Day. If I didn't say that somehow, I know my mother would know. <laughs> In the spring of 1983, I learned how to sail. I was studying at the University of Wisconsin in Madison at the time, and I joined the University Sailing Club, and in the third week of April, I began sailing lessons. I and each member of my sailing class was officially welcomed by the Board of Captains. Our names were added to the mailing list for the Sailing Club newsletter. We each got our own personal copy of the Sailing Club manual for the 12-foot tech dinghy we would start with. And we spent a couple of weeks just talking about sailing. You know, the mast, the boom, the centerboard, the forestay, the tiller. We learned important nautical language like, ahoy there, matey, <laughs> and help. <clears throat> well, I pored over my manual until I virtually had it memorized. I knew how to keep a trim sail. I knew which side of the boat was the starboard side. I knew the sailing compass. I knew how to tack. I knew how to come about. I knew how to execute a controlled jibe. And I knew that one of the most important things I would have to do is to keep my eye on the wind. And then we had our first day in the boats. And then the next day our instructor let us put them in the water. What a thrill it was, finally, to be sailing. I will never forget my first solo voyage. I was sailing by the book. I was doing absolutely everything that would guarantee the perfect sail. And I came to understand something that I had always wondered about, and that is, why it is they call that big, long pole at the bottom of the sail the boom. <laughs> Out of nowhere came what our manual referred to as a puff, an interesting name for a 30-mile-an-hour gust of wind. But that puff caught my sail and caused me to execute what we will call an uncontrolled jibe, and I found myself bobbing in the 50-degree waters of scenic Lake Mendota. While I was still trying to catch my first breath, I swam around to the bottom side of the boat, climbed up on the centerboard, grabbed the inside of the gunnel, and pulled with all my might, and somehow managed to get my boat 
with the mast pointing in the right direction. I sailed back to shore. My instructor said simply, well done, Dennis. I said, which part? <laughs> he smiled and said, once in a while, that will happen with these 12-foot tech dinghies. You did all the right things, but sometimes it just happens. <clears throat> that is how it usually happens isn't it? What happened to me that day on the lake is pretty much the way things happen every day. That unexpected call, that unplanned change of circumstances, that sudden illness, that shattering disappointment, that situation that jolts your life and capsizes your carefully hewn plans and finely tuned schedules and hurls you into the icy waters of a new and unexpected reality. And you find yourself in circumstances that could not have been anticipated. Circumstances that could not have been avoided even if you had known they were coming. Circumstances which appear to leave you few, if any, alternatives. The question we will answer this morning is this. Is there anything that a Christian can do to survive the squalls of life? The word of God comes to us this morning from Second Chronicles chapter 20. You recall from last week that <clears throat> Second Chronicles 17 through 20 recount the story of King Jehoshaphat. We focused our attention last week on chapter 18, which portrays the effectiveness of the will of God in accomplishing its intent. God's unique ability to accomplish exactly what he desires in our lives and in his world. We learned that knowledge of the will of God must be allowed to affect every aspect of our lives. This morning, we are moving into chapters 19 and 20. These chapters establish the necessity of absolute trust in God alone. We're going to focus our attention on chapter 20. <clears throat> The word of God for us this morning is this. Trust in the Lord must characterize our lives if we are to live effectively and victoriously in his will. Trust in the Lord must characterize our lives if we are to live effectively and victoriously in his will. And chapter 20 will show us why. First of all... <clears throat> we can see that only the one who trusts in the Lord will know how to respond when crises arise. Only the one who trusts in the Lord will know how to respond when crises arise. According to the first four verses of this 20th chapter, King Jehoshaphat had a first-class crisis on his hands. Chapter 17 
verse 10 recounts that the surrounding nations observing the strength of Jehoshaphat and recognizing the presence of the Lord with him not only refrained from attacking Judah, but instead brought him gifts. But now in chapter 20, verse 1, we read that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites, just like a sudden squall, are coming up to make war on Jehoshaphat. In chapter 18, he gets into a battle that he doesn't need to. Now in chapter 20, he's facing a battle that he doesn't want. Verse 2 makes it clear. The mail that day was not encouraging. Dear Jehoshaphat, a great multitude from the other side of the sea is coming against you. As a matter of fact, they're just about 24 miles down the road. Jehoshaphat had not planned on this. This military action was not on the royal calendar. In fact, it even comes as somewhat of a surprise because nations were not attacking Judah at this point. So what's he going to do? When my dinghy capsized, the reason I immediately, almost instinctively, swam around to the bottom side of the boat, climbed up on the center board, grabbed the inside of the gunnel, and pulled with all my might is because that's what I learned to do. Jehoshaphat responds here in verses 3 and 4 in keeping with what he knew and perhaps in keeping with what he had learned the hard way back in chapter 18. What he had learned to do was to keep his attention fixed on the Lord. He had learned to stay focused on the gracious word and work of God. And that is why a fast was proclaimed. And the writer tells us the entire nation sought the Lord. Only the one who trusts in the Lord will know how to respond when crises arise. It's when things are at their worst that they are actually at their best. When everything that is superfluous in our lives is stripped away, we discover what is essential. And what is essential is God. We go about our daily routines with all of their distractions and all of their irrelevancies, and then crisis barges in uninvited. And the whole composite of our lives is rearranged without anyone consulting us, without anyone asking our permission. We get criticized. We get discouraged. We get rejected. We get sick. We get in an accident. We get replaced. And sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But it is crisis that lays bare what really matters. And it's crisis that frees us up to pursue what really matters. And what really matters 
is that we seek the Lord with all our heart and put our trust in him alone. Now, I don't want to minimize the crises in our lives. There is no way to minimize the danger and the threat of three invading nations just a stone's throw down the road. There is no way to minimize the way that turmoil and trials and tragedies rip through and reorganize our lives. But the chronicler does not want us to miss a fundamental truth. And that is that only the one who trusts in the Lord will continue to live an effective rather than an affected life. Verses 5 through 12 show us, secondly, that only the one who trusts in the Lord will know that it is God's ways alone that are sure and reliable. You can see in your Bible that verses 5 through 12 focus on prayer. That's the emphasis. What Jehoshaphat does here in verse 5 and following is consistent with everything that we know about him back in chapter 17. And it's Jehoshaphat's prayer that opens up to us just why it is that God's ways alone are sure and reliable. Verse 6 affirms that God is incomparably powerful. Verse 7 acknowledges that God is characteristically gracious and merciful. And in verses 8 through 12, Jehoshaphat remembers that God's name is at stake in all that he does. All that God does is for the sake of his name. So in this crisis, Jehoshaphat declares in complete dependence upon God, verse 12, we do not have the strength to cope with this great multitude which has come against us. And we do not know what to do. So we are looking to you, O Lord, for help. We have all been there. Some of you may be there this morning. I do not have the strength to cope. And I don't know what to do. The essential reality for Jehoshaphat was not that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites were camped at Hazazan Tamar and making their way up the ascent of Hasis. The essential reality for Jehoshaphat was that God is powerful and that God is gracious and that God is vitally interested in what is going on and that God was going to accomplish his will at this time and in this place in spite of the will and the intentions of these pushy, posturing, land-grabbing nations. Verses 13 through 19 offer a third principle. 
Here the writer shows us that only the one who trusts in the Lord will know that circumstances are always in the Lord's hand. Only the one who's trusting in the Lord will know that circumstances are always in the Lord's hands. Your text will show you that God responds to the very point of Jehoshaphat's personal need, which is how God always responds. Back in verse 3, the chronicler told us that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now in verse 14, we are told, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, who said, Pay attention, all Judah, you citizens of Jerusalem, and especially you, King Jehoshaphat. The Lord has a word for you. Do not be afraid. And do not tremble before this great multitude. Because the war is not your affair, it's God's. This is not your battle, it's God's. Now, it must have gotten very confusing at this point. The Lord gives them marching orders there in verse 16. But then in the very next verse, verse 17, he indicates that they will not have to fight. The text does not say that they would not have to do anything. It just says that they would not have to fight. What they would have to do is stated in verse 17. Do you see it? Take your stand firmly and see the salvation of the Lord for you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not tremble. Go on out toward them tomorrow because the Lord is with you. What was the response of King Jehoshaphat and the people? The text tells us, verses 18 and 19, that all they could do in response to this truly incredible, characteristically phenomenal, and entirely gracious word from God was worry. No. It was get all worked up. No. The text says all they could do in response to this word from God was worship. Nobody said, uh, what do you have in mind, O king? Uh, could Jehaziel elaborate a bit on this? I don't know if I can support this personally. Could we vote on this? I, for one, have reservations. The only response that seemed appropriate was one of praise and worship. There's no question it would have been far easier for the people to despair than to proceed in the hope and assurance offered by God. It would have been easier to despair because when we live in despair and we wallow in discouragement, we don't have to do anything. 
And we don't have to risk anything. We just despair. And we do it alone. To live in hope means to go against the stream. G.K. Chesterton wrote, As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery and platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. And like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. Well, this brings us to verses 20 to 23 and a fourth principle. Here we learn that only the one who trusts in the Lord will be able to offer unconditional obedience to his will. Only the one who is trusting in the Lord will be able to offer unconditional obedience to his will. As the people were preparing to uh, go out to the wilderness to Tekoa the next morning, Jehoshaphat was in charge of devotions. And he gave them the very same word that was given by Isaiah, the prophet, to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7-9. Look at Second Chronicles 20, verse 20. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Have faith in his prophets, and you will succeed. Have faith in the Lord your God. That's it. Trust firmly in the Lord your God, and you will stand firm. Now, you and I are told, plan carefully. Work real hard. Go to the right schools. Get the right education. Get plenty of fresh air. Diversify your investments. Exercise daily. Eat the right foods. Read the Wall Street Journal. And there's certainly nothing wrong with doing any of these things. But doing these things is not the way to be established. Verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 20 tells us how we can be established. Trust the Lord your God, period. The chronicler recounts for us in these verses what is certainly the most unusual, most unexpected, most delightful and underived course of events in military history. Verse 21 says... After consulting with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed singers for the Lord who went out ahead of the troops praising God with everybody's favorite. Praise the Lord for his steadfast love is everlasting. You'll notice that this praise team was not a backup group. These singers... We're on the front lines. 22. At the very moment when they began with shouting and praise, the Lord, 
set ambushes against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those from Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were struck down. Now, being good Bible students, we would wonder at this point, how did he do that? Basic rule in Bible study. Keep reading. Verse 23 explains, and it's brilliant. The Ammonites and the Moabites opposed those from Mount Seir and wiped them out completely. When they had finished off the men of Seir, they destroyed each other. Is God efficient or what? <laughs> the purposes of God will supersede even the best of human plans. The truth is, there is another will at work in this world. It is a will that is greater and wiser and more intelligent than any created being. And that will is accomplished every day, unhindered, unimpeded, never taken by surprises, by the crises and contingencies of our life. That's why I pray, thy will be done, and then know that it will. That's why I must wait upon the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. And it's very difficult for the Christian to do. I have to come to the realization that God is at work right now. And when circumstances are ready, and when others are in the right place, and when my own heart is ready and prepared to receive, then God will immerse me in the action. The purposes of God will supersede even the best and worst of human planning. Now that's good news and bad news. The good news is that this is a great assurance that we can entrust ourselves and our families and our situations to God's all-pervasive will and plan because God is incomparably in capable. And God desires to work out his will for each one of us. The bad news, at least for some, this is also a warning a warning that our plans are always provisional. A warning that our plans, our goals, our strategies are always subject to approval. My careful plans are not always going to be realized. Your great expectations are not always going to be fulfilled. What is essential, therefore, is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord is a confident, alert expectation that God will be God and that God will do what he has said he will do. And trust requires a willingness on our part to let him do it his way and in his time. Only when I am fully trusting the Lord, will I be able to offer him unqualified obedience. Obedience without any contingencies 
obedience without any guarantees of the outcome. Our final principle is found in verses 24 to 30. These verses show us that only the one who trusts in the Lord will experience the true joy of unanticipated blessing from God. At this point, you and I know something that the people of Judah do not, and that is, we know what happened to their enemies. Verse 24 says, When Judah finally came to the point overlooking the wilderness in quest of the horde, behold, they were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to claim the spoil, so extensive was the spoil that it took them three days to claim it all. Unanticipated blessing from God. The Jehoshaphat story began back in chapter 17, verse 10, with the notice that the fear of the Lord was upon all the kingdoms of the lands around Judah. Now, at the end of the Jehoshaphat story, chapter 20, as a result of Jehoshaphat's trust and the Lord's great triumph, we read in verse 29, the fear of God was again on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And as the days of Jehoshaphat drew to a close, the writer tells us there was peace. There was peace. Not because of Jehoshaphat's administrative abilities, not because of his military prowess, not because of some strategic plan, not because of gifted support personnel. There was peace, the text says, because his God had given him rest on all sides. Trust in the Lord must characterize our lives if we are to live effectively and victoriously in his will. I believe our need and perhaps even our capacity to trust the Lord is constantly being challenged, if not threatened, by the very day and place in which we live. We do so much, so well, so often. Why would I need to trust the Lord? when I can talk to Siri? Why would I need to trust the Lord when I use OnStar? Why would I need to trust the Lord when Target allows me to expect more and pay less and Walmart is always on the way? The most fundamental question has become how relevant is God? in a life where careful plans and priorities and strategies seldom fail. 
You and I are accustomed to thinking about the future as being formed by sanctified effort and spiritual choices. We regard the future as being derived from the present. But the hard truth is, the future lies beyond our competence either to create or to halt because the future is inscrutably in God's hands. That means that our competence, our abilities, our gifts, our resources, our education, our mobility, our power, our planning, our strategies guarantee nothing. So trust in the Lord is essential. We are accustomed to acting only when the desired outcome is guaranteed. It's called risk management. Our culture has trained us well, and it just gets in the way of a life of faith. Trust in the Lord enables us to act, even in the face of obstacles, without any guarantees of the outcome, solely because God is with us. How foolish for us to put our trust in money. How foolish for us to put our trust in who we know. How foolish for us to put our trust in a plan or in a program or in our appearance or in a government or in our job or in our friends or in anything other than the living God. So this morning, you have a choice. You can continue to focus your attention on what is wrong with the world and with your life and feel sorry for yourself and do it alone. Or you can focus your energies on how you can live effectively and victoriously in the will of God in the situation in which you find yourself. It's the help we experience, not the hazards we risk, that will ultimately shape our lives. So if God's plan for you right now is to be here in Williams Bay, attending Calvary Community Church, then this is where you will be, and this is where God will work in your life, and this is where God will teach you how to trust. This could be the day you begin to celebrate the capacity to make tough decisions, to face crisis boldly, to welcome each new day with joy because your trust is in the Lord. God will accomplish what he desires for your life. So trust him. We think we need answers we think we need explanations for the crises and contingencies in our lives. What we need is a new reliance upon God, a new willingness to trust Him. Trust in the Lord must characterize our lives if we are to live effectively and victoriously in His will.
So don't be afraid. Take your stand. And see the salvation of your God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this account. We thank you for the opportunity to see in these chapters the transformation of one of your people who at a pivotal moment decided to do it his way and almost lost his life. And then, through your instruction, recognized the only right response is to trust you and the marvelous result that came about because his confidence was in your power and your ability and your will. I pray, Father, that you would use this passage to challenge us and to encourage us. For those of us who are still convinced that our way may still be better, I pray, Father, that you would through your spirit, convict us to grasp the truth here. And Father, for those who are facing a burden, an obstacle right now, wondering if there's anything that can be done, I pray that you would use these words, your words, to enable them to understand that trusting in you is what needs to be done. That's the way to be established. That's the way to live victoriously. So even though it is difficult for us to do, we thank you, Father, for the clear word in these chapters of Second Chronicles. And I pray, Father, that you would impress your truth upon our lives, transforming us so that we can live to your glory. For Jesus' sake, mm -hmm. amen.